This episode of American Farrier's Journal podcast is brought to you by SmartPak. Hi, this is Jessica, SmartPak's National Director of Equine Health Education. SmartPak knows that the most important part of hoof health is consistent, quality maintenance from you, the hoof care professional. But as you know, some horses need extra nutritional support to maintain hoof horn quality and growth rate. At SmartPak, we offer a variety of hoof supplements for all needs and all budgets, and we'd be happy to help your clients find the perfect supplement for their horse. They can call our highly trained team at 1-800-461-8898 or visit us anytime at smartpak.com. Welcome to American Farrier's Journal podcast. I'm Jeremy McGovern, AFJ's publisher. If you've ever spoken with someone who's been a farrier for a few decades, it's likely they've told you about how farriers used to share knowledge, or I guess better put, how they didn't share knowledge. Or maybe you're a farrier of a certain age and remember those times. For those of you who weren't around then, here's a common scenario. You'd show up at a barn and another farrier was working. That guy would stop working and sit around, waiting for you to finish shoeing your horses, and then he'd go back to work when you're leaving. Or maybe he'd even leave altogether. That farrier thought he had knowledge worth protecting and simply wasn't going to let you steal it by observing what he was doing. Of course, things are completely different today with farriers freely helping each other and sharing knowledge. And largely that credit goes to the visionaries who saw the benefits of uniting an industry versus dividing it. If you want one of the best examples today of someone who's willing to give of themselves to help a fellow farrier or the overall trade, I can't think of a better example than Danvers Child. Looking through Danvers' career, there are plenty of ways showing how he's given back. Besides shoeing horses, he's been a writer, an editor, clinician, examiner, lecturer, it goes on and on. Every platform you can think of, Danvers has used it to help other shoers. Even today, he's embraced social media as a way to instantly connect farriers. And if you're listening to this podcast and know what Danvers has accomplished on that platform, Then you should also know the first rule of Fight Club and realize that it also applies to Danvers' protected digital haven for farriers, hence why I'm not naming it here. But beyond all of that, he genuinely is one of the best conversations you'll find in an industry full of great talkers. And I think that's going to be evident to you once you listen to this episode. grew up in a rural area of Arkansas, and it wasn't so easy to get a farrier to come out. So was learning how to shoe more out of necessity, or were you drawn to it by fascination? It was actually a little bit of both. I, uh, I grew up on, uh, on a fairly large ranch, and uh, we had anywhere from 300 to 500 horses there at any given time. And uh, so I, we we did a lot of our own maintenance. Uh, there was you know there was a farrier that came in and did some of the cutting horses and and so forth. But the cowboys there on the ranch pretty much did their own, and I was expected to do my own uh, from a fairly young age. And uh, where I really got interested, though is the ranch was, uh, it was the Rockefeller ranch. And I think I was about 11 when, uh, Winthrop 
Rockefeller decided he was going to run for governor of Arkansas. And so his, uh, one of his best friends was August Bush. And Mr. Bush gave him a stagecoach and two Clydesdales from the Budweiser Hitch and to use in parades and uh, campaign with. And they came in and the resident farrier, or not resident farrier, but the farrier who, who provided services there wanted no part of those draft horses. <laughs> <laughs> and he, uh, he said, nope, not doing them. Well, the uh, the wrangler there, uh, who was in charge of all the horses and actually was kind of in charge of me, he was the biggest influence in, in my life, uh, and he pretty much raised me. Um, and he said, well, what the hell, we'll just show them ourselves. And so we went down to one of the storage areas, warehouses there at the ranch, and dug out an anvil and a forge, and we built shoes. I was absolutely fascinated by the whole idea of, uh, of building shoes. I'd never seen it done. Uh, had only seen keg shoes applied and we built shoes and shod those two Clydesdales and I decided that it was something that I, I really liked. So I got involved in it and took a little more interest in it. It wasn't just something that I had to do. It was something that I wanted to do. I was hooked and kept doing it. Uh, by the time I could drive, I had friends that wanted me to do it for them, and I, I started shoeing for my friends and people that I rodeoed with. Just kind of kept at it. And a time later, you ended up in Oklahoma and going to horseshoeing school there. I did. I uh, I was self-taught and and was, like I say, shoeing for friends. Then the first time I dropped out of college, <laughs> I decided I decided that I should go to horseshoe in school. And so I went to Oklahoma State and, and uh, met Reggie Kester and uh, found out how little I actually knew. And it, it was funny. I'd been shoeing for seven or eight years before I went there. And after I got there and looked at it was the first time I'd seen the inside of a horse's foot, and I was afraid to drive a nail. Uh, it was it was quite an eye opener for me to see how tight the tolerances were and how sensitive structures applied, and it uh, it humbled me quite a bit and got me started on learning more about things than just how to throw a horse down and tie him up and trim his feet <laughs> and reggie was so important for delivering that that moment to you that that realization who were some of the other mentors who who helped shape who you'd become as a farrier oh mentors uh you know reggie uh well haskell crawford the uh the wrangler there on the rockefeller ranch was my first mentor um and but that was much more horsemanship than horseshoeing. Um, he he did it. He was not proficient. He never claimed to be. Um, 
but he introduced me to it and but more than anything it was the horsemanship aspect that i learned from haskell and my first real mentor in shoeing then was was reggie reggie kester um and after that um i i was in arkansas at the time that jim Lindsay was working in that area and so i i worked with jim some learned from uh, a tremendous amount from him and owe a, owe a tremendous amount to to him as well um and then i i kind of branched out and started seeing that there was a, a larger world there and i i met people like scott simpson uh who I, I referred to all the time as Father Scott. <laughs> he was, uh, uh, Father Simpson was, he was uh, a tremendous influence and uh, he put up with my uh, tendency to be hot-headed and, and he helped me learn to calm down a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> then later there were there were so many people that I worked with. Uh, Dave Duckett was a tremendous influence, and um, and I can't tell you how much Scott Davidson influenced me. He, uh, Scott was was a true friend and mentor that took me and encouraged me in in a way that people don't really think about Scott doing. <laughs> he was uh, he was a great influence there. I think the the interesting thing about mentors is when people that you teach go on and become your teachers, and that there's that wonderful trade there. So I I had the opportunity to to work with Hank Highfield um, at a time when he was he was an experienced horseshoer, but he was just learning to study the art of horseshoeing and and I worked with him and and then turned around and and he worked with me and taught me uh the same thing happened with Steve Simmershine uh Steve came to me and said I I think I want to do this certification thing (laughs) can you tell me about it can you help me and then you know five years later Steve's teaching me (laughs) and so it, uh, it's a trade, and it's. Uh, I think that's a a thing that we overlook too often, is how much it it becomes an exchange rather than a mentoring program. It's not this person taught me; it's we taught each other. Yeah, and I, I think it's really unique to this industry. I, I, you know, there's maybe there's a process where after a while it can occur. You know whether you're an attorney, a doctor, or whatever. I find too with the older farriers, I think that it's more of an opening your eyes to the complexity of of things, and I think that's kind of where that willingness comes from. Someone's invested in what they're doing, no matter how long you've been in it. You're willing to, like you said, it becomes more of an exchange of ideas rather than a one-way street of mentorship. Very much so, and you know. I'll, I'll digress a little bit. I, uh, I, I used to talk about this as what I called the eight-year syndrome, <laughs> but I think it's probably a shorter cycle. It's probably four-year syndrome now because we, we do have so many continue, continuing education opportunities. It used to be that you would see someone who would 
go along and he'd start out and if he if he survived in this world at about eight years something happened either he knew it all and became complacent and just went out and and went through the motions or he had that aha moment or that oh shit moment where he said oh my god i really don't know anything and it's time to start over and learn this i went through it i've I've been through it several times and I've watched others go through it. And it's, it's like, you know, I'm making a good living at this. I'm doing a, uh, an adequate job at this, but I don't understand the complexities of it. And I, and I've taken too much for granted and it's time to study and learn and become a real farrier in the sense that as Craig says, owning the trade and, I want to know how to how to gather that foot and what it means to gather a foot. Uh, I want to know how to build that shoe or modify that shoe. To and I want to understand the disciplines that I'm shoeing for and what my options are and all those things that that just kind of got lost along the way during that first eight years. And those are those are the the fun things about mentorship is watching those people make that turn and it forces you to make that turn as well. And, and like I say, I've been through it more than once. It's you, you get complacent and you think, Oh yeah, I got this. And then you have to stop and say, "Uh, maybe I need to rethink. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you've had this very atypical pathway into the industry and you talked about college earlier you know, people may think horseshoe and college. It may be uh, animal science or, or something related to to the horse. Your interest was more in rhetoric. What was your interest in, in sort of the writing, the the power of per- persuasion, and eventually how did it circle around and lead you back to horseshoeing? It was a strange path, uh, and like I say, I started I started chewing horses when I was eleven or twelve. And, uh, and it was sort of a constant, um, but it was, it was never what I was going to be or what I was going to do. It was, it was a way to pay my entry fees at the rodeo. It was a way to buy a nicer truck. It was, it was all, it was found money. It was extra money. And so horseshoeing was something that I did, but I wasn't a horseshoer. I grew up on the ranch, as I said. My father was, uh, well, when I was, before we got to the ranch, my father was actually finishing up his uh, master's at the University of Arkansas in agriculture. And uh, I had some exposure to him teaching there and being a teacher there at the university. And then we went away and and went to the ranch. And that uh, that was pretty much what I knew. I wanted to follow in his footsteps and go into agriculture and possibly vet school, that sort of thing. Um, unfortunately, one of the things that, that he taught me is when he was teaching at the University of Arkansas, he, would, uh, he was teaching agriculture and coaching the judging team and things of that sort, and he would grade people on their grammar. and and that was not something that that people understood Um, and it's like you know 
hell, I want to be, you know, I want to get an ag degree, not an English degree. His response was, I'm teaching the brightest people in this university, and no one would know it because they can't communicate. Mm. And over and over and over again, he stressed the ability to communicate. And uh, whether it was in, in a oral presentation or a written presentation. And it stuck. So I, uh, I wanted to please my father. And that was, that was one of the ways that I did it was by trying to be a better communicator. I was pretty good at English. And uh, somewhere along the way, I was not very good at math. <laughs> <laughs> and as I tried to get into my, uh, my animal husbandry classes, and, uh, I found that I needed to do more and more math and that my GPA was falling more and more because I couldn't, I couldn't keep my grades up in math but I was doing well in English. <laughs> and all of a sudden I, uh, I looked and I, I had more credits in English and went that direction uh, and got a degree in English. And again, like I say, horseshoeing was something that I was doing. It was, it was paying for my college. That was what it was. It was something that paid for things. It wasn't what I wanted to be. I rolled on, got the first degree in English, uh, went back, got a master's, went back, started on a PhD. I was going to stay in the academic life and be an English teacher, but I was shoeing horses the whole time. I lost, uh, I, I was teaching at Purdue and I, I wanted out. I wanted to go to a smaller school. I wanted to go to, I wanted to go back south. <laughs> It was cold, um, and so I uh, I went on the job market, and I took a job teaching at uh, the University of Southern Mississippi in Hattiesburg. And like I said, I wanted to go south. Yeah. Uh, I had my campus interview in uh, at Hattiesburg. They liked me. I liked them. We signed a letter of intent. I came home. They were going to fax me a contract. And instead, they called me and apologized. The state legislature had put a hiring freeze on. Well, meanwhile, I'd given up my job at Purdue. I had uh, taken myself off of the job market for the other thing, other jobs that I'd applied for. So I was sitting there jobless and said, huh. I called Purdue. They were willing to give me a job back, but it wasn't very good and financially and I was shooting I had probably had about 30 40 horses on my book and that I was shooting and I said you know I think I'll just shoe horses for a year and go back on the job market next year so I called uh, Dan Froge and Jim Keith who uh, were both in my area shoeing horses uh, the Indiana Jim Keith and uh, I called the two of them, and I called a vet that I worked with, and I said, I'm going to, uh, I need some horses. And within about six weeks, I had a full book. <laughs> and it came time the next year to go back on the job market, and I said, you know, I think I'll wait another year. And then the next year, it came time to go back on the job market, and 
I looked at it and said, you know, I think I'm a horseshoer. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I've never looked back. Uh, I do miss the teaching somewhat, but I try my damnedest to keep at the teaching and, and working with people and trying to teach and, and be an educator with it. Uh, and I, I do enjoy that aspect of it and, and keep my feet in it. And so I'm still an educator. I'm just not an English teacher. <laughs> you do it enough. You're, that's what you are by that point. So. Yeah, but yeah, you know, one day you wake up and, and you just say, hey, this is what I am. And, and hopefully you're happy about it like I am. <laughs> yeah, and you, you're, you're right. You're, you're scratching that itch for teaching. You know, and it comes across with what you do. And, and I think if, you know, if people are aware of your history and that you're doing as an examiner what you're doing with, with communicating with other farriers through your writing, that's an extension of that teaching. You know, Very so, much so. Yeah. Um, let me go back to, to something you talked about and, and sort of the, that art of communication. And, and it, it's a silly question to, to ask if... If it's benefited you, of course, of course it has. But does it make? Is it a? And you, you've been an advocate. I've seen it in your writing too of being able to dissolve a lot of the issues of conflicts between horse owners and farriers with with simple communication. Where are farriers missing the boat with with communication? What what tips do you have with with having a better relationship with your clients through communication? I think there are a couple of things and. I think first and foremost, and this this is sort of a blessing and a curse thing, um, is that we're the professional, the equine professional that our clients see the most. Um, you know, they might see their trainer more, but they're not going to see a chiropractor, a veterinarian, uh, um, or a, a dentist, or anyone on a regular basis in the way that they see us. Basically. We, we're on the front line and seeing these people in a way that other people aren't. And they rely upon us and depend upon us to help them with, uh, to learn more and to inform them. And like I said, it's, it's a blessing and a curse because it, it makes us feel good, feeds our ego and makes us feel like we're being helpful. But at the same time, it encourages us to cross boundaries that we probably shouldn't. And so, you know, we we end up giving out home remedies for um, a horse that has scratches or or something, rather than than encouraging a referral to the veterinarian. So it 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 becomes an, a problem in that respect, and we have to we have to find that that balance where we're a resource and a referral uh, resource as well as an information resource. And, and a part of our information base is, is the ability to say, hey, this person is, is who you need to talk to. You need to talk to a nutritionist. You need to talk to a veterinarian. You need to talk to an equine chiropractor rather than saying, oh, well, this is what you need to do. So it, it is a trap. And and I think it's become more and more of a trap. Um, and I mean, my career's 
spanned 48 years now. And when I started out, I was shooing on a ranch for horse people. And the people that I worked for were horse people. And they knew horses. And then gradually over the years that my clientele changed. And I think that's the case with most of us where we started out shooing for horse people and now we're shooing for pet owners and we're shooing for people who don't know and they're desperate for knowledge and they're coming to us for knowledge. And of course they're going to the internet and Google for knowledge as well. <laughs> and they, um, so they get their head full of all these things and they come to us to try to clarify it. I think a large part of what we do is translation. You know, we, we help them filter and translate and, and comprehend those things that they're getting from all these, these resources that, you know, I frankly have a little trouble comprehending because it's, I never had to stop and think about is that, scratches or not it's, uh is that thrush or is that tanker i mean i just i grew up with it it's, it's it's not something that i that i had to think about that i had to study in uh on on the internet or reading books and so but our clients are are naive and they're lacking knowledge but they're not lacking interest they they're hungry for that knowledge and they want to learn and, uh, and I think we're, we're a valuable resource to them, but a lot of us grew up shooing for horse people that didn't need that. So we, we fail to understand our audience a lot of times. And that audience has changed so much over the past 40, 50 years. Uh, for me, I'm just amazed at the number of people that I shoot for that just honest to God, don't know anything about horses and, and they're looking to me to try to help them. And I have to be careful not to overstep my boundaries, but I also want to be able to help them and encourage them and, and guide them. So that's kind of where I see it. From your experience and, and how long you've been in this and not just from your experience of, of growing up around, you're on a ranch, you're going to be around tremendous horse people but in a way I have to imagine when you're starting out horseshoeing back then there's a part of a educational process when you're dealing with horsemen and, and I wonder if that's you know that in part of a way not just the idea of the the shifting landscape America is not a, you know the agricultural country so to speak most of the population is rural and I would say you know, until you get out west, most of the horseshoers are working in the outskirts of metropolitan areas outside of cities. And that's the clients you're talking about. They're getting into horses because not all of them, but a fair portion, it's now an interest because they have expendable income. And in some ways, do you see that's that might be part of the, the problem, too, is where farriers are not comfortable communicating because they're not dealing with with horse people? I think so. I think we have a, uh, a tendency to gravitate. We, we gravitate toward people that are like us. And, you know, if, 
those barns that you're talking about. You know, you go into very few barns where there's a diverse group of people in the barn. They, uh, they're all, you know, you go into a dressage barn and most of the people are very similar there. They, um, they travel in the same circles. They wear the same clothes. They know the same people. Um, and it's not, oh, there's a dressage person and a Western pleasure person in the same barn. So they tend to gravitate toward the people that they know and, and that they're comfortable around. And so I, uh, you know, it's funny, I get people that, that ride with me and I, I say, you know, I don't, I don't want you to deny who you are. But at the same time, when we go into this barn, there are ways that you blend and there are ways that you stand out. And so I, you know, I'm quite comfortable wearing a cowboy hat, but I don't go into my dressage barns wearing one and, and call attention to myself. <laughs> and we tend to forget that people are comfortable with with people who look and act like them. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just the way that people are. And um, and I don't want to go into a barn and and have that appearance of, gee, look at me, I'm very different. And I feel I feel uncomfortable in certain bars. I just look at it and say, "Hey, this is not a place that I fit," and I look for a different place. Uh, it helps too being at a point in your career where you can be a bit more selective of who you want to work with. Very much, and and that's something that that you know it's so it, it's easy to forget <laughs> that hey I'm. I've got an established clientele. I'm comfortable with them. They're comfortable with me. They don't tell me how to shoot. I don't tell them how to ride, so on. There have been times in my life and in my career where I went into barns and people told me how to shoe horses. And I was hungry enough that I shod them that way. And I needed clients enough that I said, you bet. I'll, I'll apply that shoe in that way. And now it would it would be very easy for me to get on my high horse and say, "Well, I just don't shoot that way." And or if somebody tells me to do that, I I just tell them that I don't do that. Well, I've got the luxury of that at the moment. I may not I may not have that luxury next year, and I certainly have had times in in my past where I didn't have that luxury. And it's bottom line is is we got to put food on the table. <laughs> yeah. What what advice do you have for the young shooters? And like you said, you you can be riding high today, and and then it's uh, uh, nothing tomorrow. Uh, but but for those who have to grind it out and are put into situations, whether you know they're asked to do something or they're maybe it's a situation of conflict, how how do you manage that it, it, to not get a reputation for? being a hothead or, or just a reputation of someone who just bails you know, wh- what approach do you have for where you're in that uncomfortable spot and it's not necessarily something you want to to give up on oh you know now we're back to communication and um, and I, I think that listening to what someone is saying and and not assuming that that it's bad 
is is a great first step. You have you'll have these people who will say, "Well, my horse needs needs X or my horse needs Y." You know, he needs this kind of shoe or you need to leave more heel or whatever. And my response used to be, well, here's the tools. Uh, <laughs> you, you do it, I'll rent them to you. And I'd, I'd get real prima donna about it and say, no, I don't, I don't allow that. Now that I've settled and, and mellowed and I... I have more of a tendency to treat it as a conversation. And well, why do you think that? You know, and and talk to me about what the what what you're you're wanting and why you're wanting it. So let's let's move away from the prescription of uh, squaring a toe or whatever are using a particular shoe. Let's move away from the prescription of it and get back to the the reason for wanting it. And then you engage in a conversation and you're you're dumping it back on them without being belligerent. You're dumping it back and saying, what is what's the desired effect? Not what's the way that I'm gonna get that effect. And I think that's that's very critical um, or key in in the sense that you know people who don't know what they want will tell you something very specific <laughs> <laughs> and because they've they've searched and they've found well you know everybody that that has this problem seems to do this you know and um and they look for the generic fixes. And I had a woman one time that uh, that had a horse, and she was actually a, a fairly accomplished trainer. And she had a horse that had a problem, and this was 30 years ago. And she found a guy that was, would inject the coffin joint. And I'll be damned, that horse got so much better. And... It did not matter if a horse had a shoe boil on his elbow. From that point on, she thought that you could fix everything by injecting its coffin bone. And so I, you know, you just have to find the humor in it and, and humor the people. You can't humor someone if you can't find the humor. <laughs> and so you find the humor and, and you go along and, and you keep steering them back to the the causes and the effects and and not not the specifics what uh, it's you know what do you want to achieve not how do you want me to achieve it for you and and it sets people back and forces them to reevaluate what they're asking for and before you know it all of a sudden they're saying well what do you think which is what they should have said in the first place but they they didn't know how to ask. You just used the word reevaluate. You looking at your own work. How critical are you of your own work? I think that goes. Uh, let, let's take that back a step too. Let's go back to. Let's go back to the English. I started off as a creative writing major, and I was. Um, and so I would write. Uh, I was writing poetry and short stories and novellas, and and I. Uh, 
it was very, you know, if you're writing, you're writing from your own experiences. That's the only way that it's worth a damn. And, but that also makes it very personal. And so you go into a creative writing class and you put that out there and, and it's very personal. You put a, a, all your effort into it. And what happens in the creative writing class? Well, you put it out there and everybody critiques it. And so, and then the, the normal average real response is to get defensive as hell. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, that's, that's your, your thoughts, your feelings, your experiences, and you just put it out there and people started tearing it apart. And so it, it becomes, you have to learn how to accept criticism. Otherwise, it's like, you know, somebody, somebody starts talking about something and it's like you feel like they've taken your wallet and taken the pictures of your children and started tearing them into little bitty pieces and you know they're attacking you personally so you have to figure out how to how to step back and not take it personal part of that is learning how to how to self-critique and look at your own work i think that i think a lot of us shy away from that because we've never learned how to be a critic so we we have to learn how to critique others and then utilize that to turn it back on ourselves. Uh, I don't think you can ever become a critic of yourself and of your own work until you learn how to critique someone else's. And so you start picking apart someone else's work and you start learning how to, how to articulate it so that you're, you're being helpful and saying, okay, not just, you can't just say, oh, well, this is a piece of junk, throw it out the window and start over. You have to say, oh, well, you know, this is where it needs work. As you do that, you start learning how to assess that work with the intent of making it better. That's, that's the difference between criticism and, and constructive criticism. <laughs> criticism says you suck. <laughs> and and uh, and constructive criticism says, you know, this wouldn't suck as bad if you did this. <laughs> and, and you have to learn how to take that, and you have to learn to give it, and and you have to learn how to keep that from making you incapable of moving forward. Because a lot of times, what you look at is. And, you know, you get frustrated and you throw your hands up in the air and you say, damn it, I'll never get this. And um, and then you walk away from it and, yeah, you'll never get it because you walked away from it. I think it's much easier in this day and age because we are finally getting to a point where we work together instead of go off and hide in corners and shoe horses. You know, when I started out, if you were shooting in a barn and, and somebody came in, you stopped. You didn't want them to see what you were doing. You didn't want them to get your secrets. You didn't want, uh, you didn't want them to critique your work or whatever. <laughs> my good friend Paul Doris, uh, says, you know, when he's my age and, and he says, you know, when we started out, if a farrier said he was going to a clinic, it probably meant that, that he had gonorrhea. 
because <laughs> we didn't have clinics. We didn't share information. <laughs> and it was it was just uh, it was unheard of us uh, for someone to to help someone else, and and that's the greatest thing that I've seen. Uh, you know, people talk about all the wonderful advances in in farriery over the years, and you know whether it's the access to acrylics and glues and pour ins or the introduction of, of decent keg shoes or the uh or whatever. But you wanna talk about what's changed the face of farriery over the, the past forty eight years that I've been involved in it. It's the willingness to to work together and share information and and be colleagues instead of uh instead of competitors. I mean we're all going to compete. We, uh, you know, we're competing with the people in our area, but there's plenty of horses to go around and, and we finally figured that out and learned how to work together. And, you know, I've got a problem. I, I got Steve Shimmersheim 45 minutes to the South of me. And I got Hank Highfield 45 minutes to the East of me. And, uh, and I, uh, I go work with them. I learn something from them, and, and I uh, I start feeling stagnant and, and uh, burned out. I hop in the truck and go ride with somebody, and and they're happy to have me sit in the truck with them, and happy to share information with me. And it's it's a good thing, uh, and it's so different than it was when I started. For a frame of reference for everybody who's listening, you're based in the Lafayette area, and that's about an hour northwest of, of Indianapolis. Talk talk a little bit before before I follow up with the other question on the horse culture and uh, the type of horses you work on. I'm probably really close to to where I was last year, in the sense that I'm about seventy two seventy three percent dressage. I'm kind of I'm kind of bad to follow the money, <laughs> and uh, and so when when in the '70s when Arabs were big and then, and you could make more money shoeing Arabs, I shot Arabs. Uh, when I was living in in Texas and uh, you could make more money shoeing Rainers than you could Western Pleasure horses, so I shot Rainers. Um, and in the area that I'm in. Right now, at this point in time, uh, the money is is better shoeing dressage horses than pretty much anything else. So I gravitated toward the dressage community. Um, so I'm probably about seventy between seventy and seventy five percent dressage, um, and the rest of them are a mixed bag. Everything from uh, a quarter horse, the Congress type quarter horse to backyard horses, uh, therapeutic riding centers, just a mixed bag. I'm, I'm going to digress and, and say that I think that I have the luxury of being in an area where I can specialize. If I wanted to shoe hunters or jumpers or eventers, there are enough horses uh, within those disciplines in this area that I could do that. Uh, but I think that uh, I I think specializing is a good thing in the sense that you learn a discipline and you you learn 
how to shoe for for that discipline and how to talk to the people in that discipline and that takes me back to the mentors and I learned that from Jack Miller my god Jack Miller could talk to his clients about you know picking their spots on a jump course and the num- number of strides that wouldn't uh, a horse was going to take on a in and out versus whatever and and it's key to be able to understand the discipline that those people are are riding in and know how to talk to them about it and uh and i think that's a lot easier when you're when you're dealing with a shoeing in a discipline rather than shoeing a mixed bag and i think it's cool to be able to shoe lots of different kinds of horses I think it's cool to have a diversified business, but at the same time, if you want to if you want to lock in, I think you need to do it by focusing on a discipline and a group and learning everything you can about it. Becoming a specialist and say a, a disciplined. What's your approach? What's your advice for sucking in that knowledge? Is it as simple as putting in time at the shows? Uh, you know, what, what advice do you have? If you want to be part of a community, you have to participate in the things that that community does. And I think that, that we often fail to see that as businessmen. You know, and uh, now I'm going to get on my high horse now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What, I think that one of the huge mistakes that we make is that you know you you line up you line up 50 farriers and let me walk up to them and say what do you do and i'll guarantee you that at least 49 of them if not all 50 of them will say i'm a farrier well that's good you know it's good that we identify as a farrier but what what they're ignoring and what they're not saying and and not thinking is that I'm a small business owner and I think it's important that you first and foremost recognize that you are a small business owner you are you are a farrier but first and foremost you're a small business owner and what do small business owners do they learn how to market their their business and how to how to find their clientele and and cater to their clientele and they recognize in if they're in a, a business like we are they recognize that they're in a service industry and uh, so i i mean i know that i'm in a service industry i know that i'm a small business owner i know that there's a community there and so if i want to shoot dressage horses I need to be aware of where the dressage people are going to be, and I need to be there myself. So I'll be at the at the dressage regionals. I'll have forty or fifty horses there at the at dressage regionals. When I first started transitioning into shoeing dressage horses, and I was shoeing more hunters and jumpers at the time, and I decided to make that transition. When I went to dressage regionals, I had one horse there, <laughs> but I went and I made it 
I made my presence there, and I uh, I let it be known that I was there. I didn't make a big deal of it, I, but you know, hey, look, there's Denver. He's here at the Dressage Regionals. Well, the next year I went, I had three or four horses there, and now I go and I have forty, fifty, and uh, so you know, you become part of the community. Uh, you join their associations. You go to their functions, and um, you know that's just that's the way I see it. It's uh, you you are marketing yourself to a clientele, and you are recognizing that yeah, I'm a farrier, but first and foremost, I'm a business owner. You're not not just that, but you're. You know, by attending these and, and participating in the community, you're you're developing the critical eye for what your clients are telling you about. You know, for for what they're especially in a specialty, what their specific needs are, what the the horse's work is. You know, you're you're looking Absolutely. by observation. Absolutely. Back to Jack Miller. I remember I was shoeing hunters, hunters and jumpers and um, and. Jack was at a, uh, I was a show farrier at a A show and Jack was in there shooing for a bunch of his clients and we were standing at the ring and, um, and he looked at, uh, we were looking at this course and we turned, we stood at this rail in between these two jumps for probably 45 minutes talking and we turned around and started walking away and Jack just he stopped and he kind of looked at me and he said he said how many strides were in there before that bounce I just stopped I I had no damned idea I'd stood there for 45 minutes looking at that distance between those two jumps and looking at horses going through there and had never ever looked at it and Jack just kind of shook his head and said it's a three stride you need to you need to pay attention <laughs> and, and I said yes sir mr. Miller but it, it's so it's such a, a key and critical element to know that discipline and and you know it by talking to the people and watching the people and and watching the horses and and you know people say there's nothing more boring than going and and watching the paint dry at a dressage event damn it i go and i'm i'm infatuated with it and and it's i don't find it boring at all but i'm looking at i'm looking at those horses move and i'm looking at lateral movement and i'm looking at the footing and the and the ground reaction force and i'm i'm looking at the way that the different trainers push a horse into a move or or allow a horse into a move or encourage a horse into a move I'm still a student and I'm still fascinated and infatuated and and I think that you know it keeps me not feeling like I'm I'm old <laughs> or burned out I have to imagine any horseshoe over the age of 30 has a, has a, their own favorite Jack Miller story <laughs> probably half of them you can't share on here uh, <laughs> absolutely but boy you you've uh, some of the heavyweights you've talked about you know Jim Lindsay's Scott Simpson Jack Miller and and I wanted to come back to is how shoeing changed and you know that first generation of, of Farriers who were willing to 
to get in and, and share the knowledge of like those guys are, are, are sadly a lot of them are gone and there doesn't really seem to be that watershed moment i think people can talk about walt creating the afa or, or henry launching the journal those those are actions but the cause of it I, i'm always curious of of what what do you think changed or what what spurred the change i honestly don't know um but it it was almost as if someone flipped a switch and uh, i i think that it may have been tied to the economy in the sense that people finally you know if if you look at it in the in the 40s and 50s and 60s there wasn't really a luxury market um there were people were plating horses that were running people were shoeing horses that were working on ranches um and but and but there there wasn't a show circuit there wasn't a luxury uh market and so we had to be very protective of our territory and our turf because people weren't willing to pay to, to have their horses done. And, and I, I remember when I started out, I was making handmade shoes on every horse and, and charging $18 for a full set of shoes. And, uh, and I, I was high. <laughs> people just, they didn't pay. Uh, they weren't willing to pay. And then as the show market developed and, and whether it was the, the quarter horse community or the hunter jumper community or whatever, people became willing to pay for, for shoeing. And there was, there was that sigh of relief from our community that said, Oh, I'm not worrying about where my money is going to come from tomorrow. I don't have to worry about. Joe coming in here and taking all my horses away. Um, there's enough horses for both of us. And I think that that, that was a big thing um, that we saw in the 70s and early 80s that helped create, uh, I wouldn't say a more relaxed environment, but a more open environment among us where it wasn't, you know, uh, trying to compete for the the 12 clients in in my town that are going to pay to have their horses shot you you have this rule as an educator and you embrace it and you know i don't want to tip the hand too much and, and reveal there's a certain area on facebook where, where farriers <laughs> interact uh, so that's enough as i'm going to say about that and you mentioned earlier you were maybe a bit hot-headed as, as most young men are, but there's this very cool thing about you of moderating, you know, moderating a, a, the discussions online. And there obviously are misconceptions. Otherwise, we wouldn't need something like the Forge of July, uh, where although say, oh, Danvers, he's he's an examiner, so he's only interested in doing ways this way or, or specific to the AFA ways, and that that's simply not the case. Uh, you know, there's an openness, and I think that's why you can foster something like the Forge of July. Is that just something that came with age, came with experience? Was this always the case with you? <laughs> no, I haven't always been this way. April told me uh, the other day, in fact, that that 
I had progressed. Uh, I, I had made a progression from being a dictator to being a facilitator. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that, uh, you know, I, I hold strong opinions and I, I am very passionate and, and hold those opinions strongly. But at the same time, I recognize that, and, and I think it's a function of age. I recognize that some of those p- opinions that I hold so strongly now are things that that I railed against <laughs> 30 years ago. I've just I'm more willing to be open-minded than I was, and uh, and I I think that it's primarily a function of failure on my part. You know, I tried to do things and held to them whether they worked or not and you know one of my things now is uh i i love working on high low horses and it's one of my passions i've done it about 10 different ways over the past 40 years and you know the way that i have now is working better for me it's you know still not the fix that everyone would hope that that we could find but uh I recognize that each way that I've looked at it has given me a progression to build on. And, you know, back to the old thing of, you know, you can learn something from, from anyone. It may be something that not to do, (laughs) but you can learn. And I've, uh, I'm just, I think it kind of goes with being a student. Uh, you can't be a good teacher without being a good student. As a student, I find that I have to stop, reevaluate, reassess, start over, rethink, and you know, hardest thing in the world to do is to crawl out of a box. You get in a box and it's it's safe. You feel like a little kitten in there, <laughs> and um, it's it's a nice little safe place to be. It's hard to get out of that damn box. And, and you know, sometimes I I try to force myself out of it, and and I um, I look at things and I'll laugh and say that's stupid, and then I stop and say, wait a second, I need to be I need to look at it from a different perspective and and see what I can find in there. What was this person thinking? And damn, sometimes I go full circle and say. Wow, <laughs> why didn't I? Why didn't I see it that way? Describe how you've changed over time with that. How you would approach a high-low horse versus a different time in your career? Oh, have we got another hour? <laughs> <laughs> I, I can break the surface yeah. <laughs> if we have an hour. Uh, suffice it to say that um, I started looking at more than the feet. And I started looking at the idea that uh, that I didn't have to match feet and that I needed to match mechanics. I'll jump way ahead and say that the way that I look at it now is uh, has to do with scapular rotation. And that when we see, you know, We've all done the deal of looking down the uh, uh, looking down the croup and up to the withers and seeing the disparity 
in the scapula where the the low side will be bulging and um, and full and look very developed and and the high side will be slanted and straight and, and slabby looking um, and and we see that disparity and and we think of it in all kinds of different ways and I finally started looking at it as uh, as scapular rotation where that low foot is actually um, um, a function of or affiliated with or connected to that rotation. And so you get a different movement and a different mechanic because that scapula is situated, abducted, and the other scapula is, is abducted. So you've got one that's that's abducted. The, the high side is abducted the low side is abducted or rotated forward. So you get different mechanics and different, uh, different movement out of it. And what you get is that horse tortures the low foot. And if you can get him to utilize, I, I used, to, I used to look at it and, and think, Oh, this, the problems in this low foot. And I would work and work and work on that low foot trying to make it better. I'd wedge it, I'd use acrylics, I'd do whatever, trying to get that foot to function better. Well, hell, the way I see it now is that that foot is is functioning very well. It just can't hold up to the torture because it's not utilizing the foot on the high side as well. So if I can get him more comfortable on that high side and get him to utilize that, that side better and that foot better, then he's not going to torture that low side and it will recover almost on its own because you, you are getting him more even in the sense that um, of mechanics and willingness to, to take the weight and, and the stress on that, on that high side that he's been avoiding. So basically he's torturing the, the low foot on the, in the back half, which is soft tissue and crushes and falls apart rather quickly he's torturing the high foot in the front half which has the bony connection and we don't see it for for several years until it develops fetal osteitis and we see it radiographically it's it's a matter of the ones being tortured externally the others being tortured internally and but we can't see it internally well i certainly appreciate you sharing that view with us and everything else you shared I want to thank you so much for sitting down and giving us your time. Uh, I appreciate it, and I'm sure everybody else out there listening appreciates it. Well, and thank you for the opportunity. Well, everyone, there you have it. Danvers gave us a lot to think about. He gave us a history lesson, and I think he gave us some great overall insight. So once again, I want to thank Danvers, but I also want to take this opportunity to thank SmartPak. Be sure to visit smartpak.com. If you have any farriers you would like to hear from, let us know at info at AmericanFarriers.com. We'll be back in a couple weeks with a new episode. And until then, thank you for listening. <laughs>